friends, welcome to Silo Busting. I'm your host, Allison Coden, an interaction designer at EPEM Continuum. In our business of designing new digital systems and products, it's easy to get lost in the minutiae of what we're building, to wade through buttons and calendars and progress bars, losing sight of the horizon in front of us, the big picture strategy of not just what we're building, but why. That why is crucial, and the answers that real users enmeshed in their real lives and context can give us are more precious still. Do people really want this thing we're building? Will it change them, and are we asking them to change in return? Will it make their lives better or simpler? And so we do our research. We watch people doing the tasks of daily life, from feeding their pets at home to monitoring growing cells in a lab. And we ask questions. We're nosy. We get personal. Like a four-year-old kid, we ask why again and again till we get to the bottom of all the choices and actions most people take for granted and the values that drive them. We do all this so we can build solutions that people truly want, that fit into their lives. But we can't assume we got that right, so we test again. How are people using our new tools? Are we making those tasks and the life context around them harder or easier? At some point, you might start to wonder, could an AI system be running these tests faster with less human effort and getting us to the perfect experience a little more quickly? Let's hear Philip Soffer, EPAM's VP of Product Service Systems, and Jonathan Lupo, VP of Experience Design, talk through the premise and the clear limitations and biases of AI-powered automated testing. Spoiler alert, there's always going to be a role for human minds and hands in this process. We, you and I were having a conversation the other day, and you brought up something that was a little provocative um, in terms of uh, the world of AI-driven design and testing. And you actually questioned what role that humans play in this kind of automated world that we live in uh, with respect to design and testing. Could you elaborate on your thesis? Well, I'm not sure it qualifies as anything so grand as a thesis, um, but I think what I was getting at in our conversation is that the more we introduce artificial intelligence into various systems, whether it is in how they behave for the end user or in how we test them, uh, the more important it actually is to have a human check on the AI. And this is true for various reasons, one of which is that AIs are not perfect, as we know. Uh, they may behave in ways uh, that actually don't work for the human beings for which they are intended. And a second reason is that AIs are biased uh, in favor of the data sets that they are trained on, uh, which may not actually be uh, the same people uh, for whom uh, the systems are intended, or it may actually introduce really dangerous uh, algorithmic bias uh, that needs to be checked somehow. And so I think my provocative moment was in precisely this time when we are saying humans uh, can be superseded by robots, it is in fact uh, a, a key moment for humanity in uh, uh, directing how all this, uh, all this innovation is going to go. And I want to make sure we don't lose that. I couldn't agree more. Um, you mentioned um, that AI is only as good as the data that is input or the data that it has access to. And from an inclusion perspective, um, obviously we have a long way to go um, before we rely on these kind of AI-driven models, given that um, we haven't sufficiently taken into account uh, information or understanding of kind of diverse minority populations, I think. Um, that's come to light recently that AI-driven systems or machine learning can be biased um, based on 
the level of access to technology and, you know, to the uh, developers of AI-driven solutions. Another point to bring up, I think that's important, is that design and testing require deep understanding of human needs and problems. And those problems can range from functional, you know, uh, cognitive or emotional uh, needs that we're solving for uh, with design. And obviously there's limitations to what an, uh, an analytically kind of driven system can measure in terms of needs where you uh, really rely on humans with empathy to understand in a more qualitative way how a product's being used and and more importantly, why it's not being used. Um, uh, machines can tell you the what, but um, to date, I don't think they're that great at understanding the why a product may be failing, especially based on emotional uh, reasons. Um, but let's, let's talk about um, kind of another uh, issue, which is, what problems uh, need solving when we, we test experience? So there's a lot of different types of validation and software development, a lot of types of testing. When we focus in on the user experience, from your perspective, Phil, what, what problems are we solving for? That's a, a great question. Uh, I think uh, the first thing I would say is that all forms of testing, whatever you call them, are ultimately about fitness for a purpose by a particular user or community of users. And so I think, you know, historically, the world of software testing has um, sort of fragmented in different, uh, different camps, which represent segments of the software development lifecycle. So, uh, the developers think a lot about their unit tests, testing their atomic units of code, and then integration tests, how those things uh, work together. And then you might have different people who are thinking about functional tests and different people who are thinking about uh, user experience tests and accessibility tests and all these different flavors of testing have a different community that is associated with them and different practitioners who know different things. But what is happening in the world as the world accelerates is that the time that, uh, that there is for all these kinds of different tests is becoming increasingly compressed uh, because everybody wants to release software faster. Everybody sees a time to market advantage as being dispositive for their business. And so the traditional way of segmenting these things temporally is going away. And we need a system that solves for this problem of whether it's a functional bug or whether it's a usability issue or whether it is uh, an algorithm that is misplaced or, or uh, misunderstanding human needs. Uh, if the software is not fit for purpose, we need to be able to find that out quickly and remediate the problem, whatever the problem is. And so the old notions that we have about separate domains, uh, while still useful, uh, don't necessarily help us answer that question in the time that most of our software developers have allotted. And, and I don't know if you guys see that in the, uh, in the user experience world or the, the engagement uh, world, digital engagement world, but certainly it's something that we see 
uh, in the software testing world is how compressed the time cycles are and, and you know, how, how little time there is to do all of the things uh, in, in the allotted time. Yeah, I'll comment on kind of the, the timeline of testing um, throughout a product life cycle, because that's a great point that I want to get back to. But first, um, from an experience standpoint, as an experienced designer, I want to talk about two kind of key attributes of an experience um, that we like to validate through testing. And that is, number one, you mentioned it, Phil, usability. And number two, resonance, right? So usability relates to how well the user experience conforms to their you know, mental model, the end user mental model, and is predictive and facilitates those tasks, those intended tasks, basically how easy is it for the intended audience to use the interface, the software. But resonance relates to how engaging that experience is emotionally, um, how engaging is that product to the target user base? And why that's important to test is for adoption, right? You're creating new products, new services um, that haven't been used before. And you really need to understand before you um, kind of bring it out into the wild, you know, what the likelihood is that the target audience will use it, whether it resonates. And I think both sides of that experience equation are critical um, for a successful product or service. Um, so we need to test those factors. With respect to the, the timing of when to test, and you know, you mentioned that you know, our product timelines are compressed. This is true. Clients are not um, giving us more time. They're giving us less to, to perform due diligence when we develop products and services. I guess a benefit of automated testing and analytics from my perspective is the fact that we don't have to create these um, you know, moments in a project, a product life cycle for testing and validation, that that can be happening continuously in real time. Um, isn't that the benefit of having uh, an automated um, system? Yeah, it absolutely is the benefit of having an automated system. Uh, but then you have to ask yourself, what is the nature and limits of what you're testing? So the automated system will test how well the software conforms to the tests that were written for it. But the questions that you're asking, which I think are, are deeper and, and kind of the, the right questions from a human-centered point of view, like, does this actually work well to accomplish the the the, the task that the user wants and, and how engaging is it, you can't automate those things, or at least we don't know how to automate them well. And so I think the question becomes for somebody who's developing a product or, or I think even more importantly for someone who is incrementally enhancing an existing product is how can you get user-oriented, like real human user-oriented feedback into the loop as early as possible, shift, shifted left, and as actionably as possible, which is to say, you know, don't just tell me, don't just give me a bunch of data that tells me like something's wrong, but can you tell me uh, what's wrong? Can you tell me how it could be better? Can you tell me for whom it's wrong? Uh, and, th and that kind of thing. And the earlier you can get that into a continuous delivery cycle on top of the automated tests that you're doing as a kind of baseline, I think uh, the better you're going to be in developing uh, 
uh, and continuously improving these uh, usable and resonant interfaces. Can a, a machine tell a designer that they think it's time to intervene and um, do some human-led testing? Is there a signal that an AI can send to a team, a product development team, um, that alerts them to uh, a need for a deeper level of understanding about what's going on? I think that's a great question. I think if you have telemetry in production that is constantly monitoring how users uh, are using your system and the uh, you have enough kind of training from skilled people who said, if you see uh, if you see changes that look like this, they are important and significant, then an AI might be able to at least help you there and tell you to, to do some, some deeper kind of user testing. One of the things that we say about AIs in, in testing is it's very hard to teach an AI to do something that a human doesn't know how to do. So a, a human... Uh, kind of needs to be able to look at this set of data and make some inferences from it. And if a human can do it, then you can probably train an AI to do it. But if a human can't do it, and it truly is uh, something that is, uh, that is, I guess, outside of our ability to intuit from the data, then it, w- it, it will be hard to get an AI to do it, or at least do it well. I see. Um we can't really have a conversation without talking about our current moment, this uh, pandemic that we're all experiencing and that is influencing how we work and causing us to do things really differently. This could be an opportunity for um, automated remote testing. And I was wondering, Phil, what your thoughts were in terms of how um, things are changing in the world of software testing due to the moment that we're currently in? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, You know, one thing I think uh, has been uh, interesting for us to see, so you used to have this notion of hallway testing, which is, uh, I guess you guys, uh, I don't know how official or unofficial in the digital experience world hallway testing is, but it's common practice to kind of take some kind of design or early prototype and literally just kind of walk around the office and see how people engage with it. And in a world where you don't have a lot of time uh, to do formal testing, hallway testing has been uh, a little bit of a substitute for that. And so what happens when you take away the hallway because uh, everybody's in a, in a different place? How can you do that in a, in a, scalable, uh, in a scalable way remotely? And so we've uh, had a lot more interest in doing that kind of hallway testing in a virtual way uh, through uh, the, the testing crowd that we have uh, as, as part of Test.io. So I think that's one that's one way in which the um, the world of software testing uh, has changed by the the pandemic. A second, uh, you know, I, I think we've all gotten more used to remote work. That's kind of a truism, but the way in which work is organized. Uh, has, I think, changed a little bit from one in which there's a default uh, idea that everybody uh, is in the same room and you can kind of educate one another on things in, a, in an ad hoc way. Uh, I think uh, we've actually seen uh, in our practice 
a, a, an uptick in the importance of proper, good old-fashioned written documentation. Uh, so if you're going to have people who are distributed and maybe even in different time zones who are working on a thing, you need to learn how to uh, communicate about that thing in a way that doesn't require as much uh, high bandwidth face-to-face communication. Uh, and so in many ways, this is, you might even say, a return to an older practice, uh, if you will. Uh, but uh, certainly we're seeing the importance of that more than we, we did a couple of years ago. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we've always had kind of remote, from an experience standpoint, experience design, we've always had remote, moderated and unmoderated usability testing platforms that we've used since uh, before the pandemic. And those are wonderful platforms and technologies that can give us some some quick insights um, before we start design. But what we lose, and I think what we're losing now without the ability to be within the end user's environment because of COVID is context. And as we know, the context in which an end user engages with a product or service is critical. Um, You know, my view of a test participant's context or surroundings is limited to their webcam when I'm using a remote um, platform for testing. When I perform contextual ethnographic research, I'm able to examine, you know, the entire environment in which the consumer engages with products and services. What information do they have on hand? Are they at home or at work? Do they use a phone or a computer to engage with the product? And I think all that context is is lost, unfortunately, when I try to observe their world and their engagement through the tiny lens of their webcam. So, you know, I agree there's um, opportunities, but I think we are losing a lot of uh, deep understanding specifically related to context and environment um, in in our current uh, moment. And we should look for ways to supplement that. And I think there are kind of unique techniques that designers are using, design researchers are using to to understand that remotely, uh, such as diary studies or, you know, just uh, prompts um, for the participant to really capture those elements in their environment, which could be influential to design. Um, What do you think the results of this kind of lack of context will look like practically in, in systems? Like, will you get systems that have a fairly high degree of usability, but much lower resonance than you would ultimately expect? Uh, how does it translate into, into what, what gets designed, do you think? Yeah, for sure. I mean, a lot of what we look for uh, when we are in the environment that an end user engages with a product is workarounds, right? And information they have at hand. So, you know, when you're creating a enterprise application and you want to understand how someone works, you look around their cubicle or their bookmarks to understand, you know, what other information are they pulling in outside of the application you know, to do their jobs, um, the jobs to be done. And so what what that could look like to answer your question more specifically in terms of a solution design without that context is really not including, you know, adjacent information that could be critical to the completion of a task or not really understanding 
the end user's mental model, how they organize information, maybe how they set up their files or their, you know, um, their bookmarks, their email inbox, even their folders, um, which could be critical to the IA and the navigation of the software that you're designing. So I think it could resolve itself in in different ways that that issue um, of not understanding the context fully. And you may design the application finally for the wrong platform itself. If you understand, you fail to understand or watch what actions are being performed on a phone versus a tablet versus a desktop, you know, um, you may actually target the wrong platform. So that would be an example of something that's usable, but not resonant. If it's, if it's very usable on a desktop, but everybody wants to do it on a phone, then that's not a win. Yeah. And it may, it may not uh, work on the phone or you may design the wrong tasks for up for the phone. If you don't observe that, com- you know, that action in, in real time um, or in person. I want to go back well, to something that we had discussed earlier which is the sort of um, the need to test algorithms against biases. And I think a lot of people, uh, if they hear this in a U.S. context, they you know, immediately think that it's a social justice issue purely and not uh, an economic one. And so I want to actually take that out of the UX, U.S. context entirely uh, and give an example of where this manifests itself in a different country uh, and, and where the consequences are, are directly economic. Uh, so we were doing some, some testing at Test.io of a uh, voice recognition algorithm uh, for uh, a German company uh, that does things around the repair of cars uh, and getting uh, car repair appointments and so on. And the testing that we did uh, demonstrated fairly conclusively that if you were Bavarian, you were not going to be able to get your car repaired uh, because the accent from South Germany uh, was not recognized by the, uh, by the AI. And uh, that's uh, because the Ger- Germany is a, a much more uh, linguistically complicated country than I think most people outside of Germany understand. And, and there's actually different dialects of German that are spoken, uh, which map themselves into different accents of high German. Uh, and the uh, algorithms have been trained on uh, Northern German uh, speakers, but not Southern German ones. And so it wasn't a question of uh, Bavarians not feeling uh, represented uh, in German society. I, th- I think by and large they do. Uh, but uh, this was really a, an issue of, of, of kind of the training set of the particular algorithm that was in place. And it would have meant that the product would not have done as well in uh, a significant and economically uh, uh, wealthy uh, part of Germany. So I think people who immediately think about these, uh, these biases and algorithms as as purely social problems, like obviously they are, and we should think about them from that standpoint. But you need to think about them pragmatically as well if you're if you're designing systems and relying upon uh, AIs, because there's there's definitely very good economic reasons for making sure that you're not introducing uh, bias into your algorithms. 
For sure. I think the social justice issues um, come to the forefront because um, they represent the worst possible scenario of a biased system uh, like that. Um, and so they are very important to focus on in addition to, you know, uh, the functional and economic, economic impact of having a gap in the data set that trains the, the AI um, because of a lack of inclusion. Um, I think both, to your point, are important. And I think to sum up, uh, I think we've just proven um, your thesis correct from the beginning of this conversation, which is humans will always have a role to play in helping to train and assist uh, AI and um, automated systems um, because, you know, th these systems are dependent on context and on, you know, uh, a deep level of input um, that can only be uh, brought about or introduced uh, with a uh, human understanding of, of our society and of the, uh, the business context with which we develop these products and services. So thanks for your time, Phil. It's been a great conversation. And uh, I think our audience has learned a lot about uh, testing and the, the challenges with automated and AI-driven testing platforms. So thank you. Well, thank you. And I hope uh, that we will uh, get to spend some time together in the office that we now theoretically share. So <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Looking forward to That'll it. It'll be fun. Won't it? This has been Silo Busting, a podcast from EPAM Continuum. EPAM Continuum integrates business experience and technology consulting focused on accelerating breakthrough ideas into meaningful impact. Why do we do this? Because real opportunities aren't siloed. Thanks to Philip Soffer and Jonathan Lupo for their great conversation. Cheers to Kip Palalis, our sound engineer extraordinaire, for getting this podcast recorded. Applause to Ken Gordon, our producer, for all his masterminding behind the scenes. I'm your host, Allison Coden, and if you have a minute, can I ask you a few questions about how you're using that app? 